In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today, as we should always. Help us to understand what it is that you want us to understand. Help us to open our mind and our heart, our spiritual ears, so that the truth of Scripture can come through. Help us then also to deal with these wisdom books in a way that we would deal with books of love. Not that we accept everything, but that in the long run, it penetrates into our hearts as you would want it to. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. How many of you have read the second half of Sirach now? Ah, that's good. Was the format that I gave you last week helpful? Yeah, the thing is, in in this particular book, you can't get or shouldn't get lost in the details, but to step back to see what is the big picture, and some of the details are now obsolete because you have to consider that this was written by a very faithful, very ultra conservative Jewish man. And his conservatism was not really accepted by the general uh, ruling class of that particular time period. Remember, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was a Sadducee. And a Sadducee is one who, first of all, doesn't believe in any life after death uh, and is in favor of the priesthood ruling the people and is in favor of a number of things that go back to the Torah and its strict observance of the Torah. But at the time this was written, the Jewish people were being confronted with the Greek culture, which was much more open, much more I don't know how to say it politely, but in a promiscuous way. In other words, uh, very progressive, let's put it, to be polite. Uh, and, of course, Ben Sira did not agree with that. And we see that in many ways through here. So the thing is, if you get caught in the details, then you're going to lose sight of what he's really saying. The whole idea of the gift of wisdom is like the gift of love. And it is something that has to come through our minds, but into our heart. And if it is not actually uh, projected from the heart, it is not then uh, pure wisdom. But nevertheless, let us go through, as we did last week, uh, then towards the end, there are some interesting subjects that um, I would like to get into in a little more detail. Starting with chapter 25, and I'm doing this solely for Susan's purposes, so... 
<laughs> Just joking. In praise of wisdom among the aged. Now, uh, he sure stands up for the uh, old people here. But boy, he sure puts down women, unfortunately. <laughs> this, this guy must have had a real problem with his wife. Uh, because uh, he really um, gives it to women. Uh, but anyways... Praise of wisdom. Yes, we should praise wisdom. We should constantly ask God to bless us with the gift of wisdom. And when I talk about wisdom, again, it is not uh, the current idea of street smarts. Okay, And we'll get into that again uh, a little more next week. 26 through 28 is a number of details that I think you can see that he's beginning to repeat himself here. The blessing of a good wife. Three kinds of people whose condition is the reverse of what it is expected. And there's another thing in here. Here, Have you seen the phrase, I only believe in uh, three things, but there's four mentioned? Uh, that is a literary device very common in Jewish poetry. And you'll see that not only in this book, but in, in many of the books of the Old Testament, where they'll mention one number, and then they will give you uh, examples, but there will always be one more than that. Uh, and I've tried to look up as to why, and uh, I've never found a reasonable answer for why they do it. It's just sort of a literary uh, style or custom. Right. Against betraying secrets, the hatefulness of hypocrisy, unforgiveness. Vengeance is for the Lord only. Remember, uh, we saw that in uh, the book of Job. Uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Warnings against quarreling. Well, yeah. No, never, nothing, nothing ever good comes out of quarreling. On lending in accordance with the law and almsgiving in accordance with the law. Now he's talking about the Torah, the old Jewish law that by this time has kind of lost a lot of its uh, favor. On bringing up children. Uh, not only does he, but in Proverbs you find a great deal of discussions about bringing up children. This was a very important point in uh, Jewish culture, that a loving father will punish his children. And I think there's some wisdom in that also, because we have found that those people who do not, and in some cultures, uh, they feel that, oh, you should not uh, punish or restrict the children. Let them do what they want until they get older. Well, if that happens, once they get up into teenagers, you know, it's about almost impossible to change them. So the whole idea is you start from a very early age in disciplining uh, children, and they will love you in the end. Well, yes and no. Uh, there's a lot of pros and cons for that. 
Yes, if it is done with a great deal of love to balance. Yes, it is done if the child begins somewhere along the line to understand why the discipline is necessary. But if it is just discipline for the sake of discipline, uh, it doesn't work. I think we all know that if we uh, have had children. So it's important uh, that we kind of be careful of how he uh, describes some of this. Um, chapter, uh, chapters 31 through 35 is a repeat of a lot of the same subjects that were mentioned before. I think he's beginning to run out of details here. <laughs> and so you'll notice that the chapters are much shorter as well. It doesn't have quite as much to say. Chapter 36. I'd like all of you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 36. Come to our age, O God of the universe, and put all the nations in dread of you. Raise your hand against the heathen, that they may realize your power, as you have used us to show them your holiness, so now use them to show us your glory. That's a little interesting uh, twist there. As you have used the Gentiles... Sometimes you have to substitute words in here to really understand what he's saying. As you have used us to show the Gentiles your holiness, and that's true, that was the whole, one of the main purposes of Judaism in the first place. So now use the Gentiles to show us your glory. In other words, he's wishing punishment on the Gentiles. And thus they will know, that is, the Gentiles will know, as we know, that there is no God but you. Give new signs and work new wonders. Show forth the splendor of your right arm. Remember, <clears throat> Jewish people or Jewish culture had sort of a double standard for a lot of its words. And in relationship to God, the arm was a sign of strength. The hand was a sign of power. And that is why in our consecration and ordination ceremonies of priests and deacons, the bishop will place his hands on the head of the candidate and that is the sign of transferring power through the church from the bishop to this man who is now becoming a priest or a deacon. Uh, there are a number of other words that have sort of a double meaning like that. Uh, one, the main one, of course, is the word name, N-A-M-E. People did not go around displaying their name on little badges. You know, as we do today, uh, where I live, everybody wears a little badge with the, their name on it so they get to know new people coming in. 
but in Jewish culture, you didn't do that. You protected your name because your name meant something of you personally. And it also was the same as your signature. So if you gave your name out, it was like giving your signature out to somebody. Okay. The word name stood for the whole person. And that is why when we say in our prayers, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we're talking not about the person's name that we think of, Jesus, for example, but we're talking about who he is and what he stood for. So keep that in mind when you're praying and you come across the word of name. There's a lot of that in our uh, Catholic prayers and liturgies. Says uh, number uh, verse six here. Rouse your anger and pour out our wrath. Humble the enemy, scatter the foe. Hasten the day, bring on the time. Let raging fire consume the fugitive and your people's oppressions meet destructions. Actually, what he's talking about here are the previous Greek kings and the current Roman kings. Gather all the tribes of Jacob that they may inherit the land as of old. In other words, he's trying to bring back the sovereignty that was the, at the heart of Judaism and Israel before the Babylonian uh, exile. Let us go on to a, a couple others here. Let's go to chapter 43. Oh, wait, stop it. Stop at uh, at 30, uh, 39. I have something here. In chapter 39, we have a section called The Praise of God the Creator, at verse 12. Once more I will set forth my theme, to shine like the moon in its fullness. Oh, listen, my faithful children. Open up your petals. Open up your ears. There's a word there. That is, that's what it means. Open up your uh, ears. Like roses planted near running waters. Send up the sweet odor of uh, incense and break forth in blossoms like the lily. Okay. The um, reference to the moon here is important because a couple of years ago somebody came up to me in one of these meetings and was just excited about an article that he had read in the paper about how all of the Jewish uh, feast days, particularly this is the ones in the September, which uh, starts out Rosh Hashanah and ends with Yom Kippur, 
were all lining up with the new moon and the full moon, I meant, not new moon, the full moon. And this article went on and on and on about well, this is a sign of things that are going to get to happen and so forth. And I kind of stood there and thought about it and I said, well, I hate to bust your balloon, but I said, the Jewish calendar was based on the moon, the lunar calendar. And so all of these things were predicted centuries ago. This is not something new. Uh, you know, but somebody got a hold of this and made a big thing for the newspaper. But this is normal. And the Jewish people would tell you that this could have been predicted and discussed or written about years ago. That everything in the uh, paper here that seems to be something new and just discovered was known for centuries. It was the Egyptians that actually charted the planets of the universe and gave them names. And of course the Hebrew people picked that up while they were exiled in Egypt. So this goes back 2,500, well, it goes back now more than that, of course, goes back to 3,500 years ago. So, you know, sorry there, but nothing new, really. And that's one of the things that Koheloth uh, was saying in his book, Nothing new under the sun. Oh, huh. you know, everything has been discovered and everything has been organized and written out. Nothing new under the sun. Well, that's not quite right. Chapter 41 has some interesting things. Oh, death, how bitter the thought of you. Sounds like a line from Hamlet. Oh, death, where is your sting, etc. For the man at peace amid his possessions, for the man unruffled and always successful, who, um, who still can enjoy life's pleasure. Oh, death, how welcome your sentence to the weak man of failing strength tottering and always rebuffed, with no more sight, with vanished hope. Fear not death's decree for you. Remember, it embraces those before you and those after. Thus God has ordained for all flesh. Why, then, should you reject the will of the Most High? This is one of those things that makes this book in some ways unique. And the writer, again, is reflecting his beliefs uh, in the conservative side of Judaism, which had no room for looking um, at a life after death. There was no reason for them, uh, no purpose in really doing anything great. And, so much of this was voiced also 
in the book of Kohelo. The rich and the poor all end up in the same place. So what is the purpose of trying to be uh, good or special or different? Uh, you might as well just go and enjoy life and, you know, let things happen as they will. Well, of course, we know that that is not the Christian way of looking at things. And which way would you rather be? Would you rather go back to Judaism that believed that after death, nothing was different and no one really enjoyed or got anything out of being good? And then it contradicts other things because what's the purpose of being good to your neighbor? What's the purpose of sharing your wealth with the poor? It doesn't get you anywhere according to the old Jewish faith. So those are the kinds of things that will help you when you're trying to look at this in a way to uh, help you in your prayer time. Thank God that we have a different way of looking at things, that we now know that there is life after death. Our souls are immortal, and they go on forever. The body dies temporarily, but will be reunited at some point in time. I always say I'm going to have more hair when I, you know, <laughs> am reunited. <clears throat> uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's just so much I think in here. That's why I, I really enjoy these books. And as we get towards the end of this one, there's some very interesting things about some historical people. Not hysterical, but historical. Okay. But chapter 41 really is, a, is a, uh, sort of a repeat of Koheloth and some of the book of Job. You know, why be good when the good and the bad, the rich and the poor all end up in the same place? Okay. Chapter 43, um, especially when you get over into... This is another one where it explains uh, the clear vault of the sky shines forth like heaven itself. Now, see, heaven is mentioned. So don't confuse what I just said with a statement like this. They knew that there was a heaven because God was up there. Remember, Moses went up the mountain to speak with God several times and so they knew God was up there. That's why we always have a sort of a habit of looking up when we're talking about God. Well, what about the people on the other side of the world? You know, are they looking down? Uh, you know, or are they looking up? Uh, they believed in heaven, but they believed that that was a place for the gods. And human beings returning to God, no. I was totally out of the picture at uh, in pre-Christian times. Some people now in the Jewish faith, and even towards the end of the uh, first century BC, 
there, they were beginning to change because the Greek culture, Hellenism, that was trying to force its way in, uh, they believed in a life after death. They didn't have any clear understanding of what it was, but they believed that there was a life after death. So you did have some Jewish people that uh, accepted that, again, without any explanation. But the conservative ones, like this guy, uh, no, no, there was no such thing. Okay. So, 73, or, I'm chapter 43, really is kind of talking about uh, the idea that there is no life after death, and that's something that we should uh, be aware of. <coughs> Beginning in chapter 44 is where we have some interesting um, comments about heroes and important people of the early Jewish history. I've looked over this and uh, some of it is okay. And a lot of it is interesting, but not always accurate in the ways of later thinking. Remember, this was written in the early part of the second century BC, around the year 200 or 175 uh, BC. So Hellenism was just creeping in to that area at that time. And a number of the Jewish beliefs uh, were still held, uh, but a number of them were changing as well. Okay. The early patriarchs, it starts out with Enoch. I don't know why it would start out with him, but it does. Enoch walked with the Lord and was taken up. All right, now, actually, to make it a little more confusing, first of all, who is Enoch? Hmm? Uh, chapter 44, verse 16. Yeah. Does your Bible have the, uh, no, it doesn't have the, the headings. See, there's. Early ancestors. Yeah, the early patriarchs or ancestors. Okay, yeah, right after that. Enoch walked with the Lord and was taken up. There are two Enochs in Jewish history. Uh, the first one is the son of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? All right, there's not much history, there's not much discussion about that one. This is not that Enoch. This one is described as the nephew of Aaron, Moses' brother. Okay. Now, how could Aaron have a nephew, unless it was from his wife's side, uh, because there were no other sons in that family? Right. Uh, Enoch was the father of Methuselah. Now, isn't that interesting? Enoch supposedly lived 365 years. Uh, Methuselah lived over 700 years. Well, no, no, no. 
the church says that uh, that was the author's way of filling in time periods when there was no other way to make uh, decisions or to judge or to have a record of how old. Remember, there were no common used calendars in those days, so there was no way to actually designate time. When we go back, as I said just a few minutes ago, that this book was written somewhere around the second century BC, early part of the second century BC, that was because <clears throat> in the 13th century AD, Pope Gregory went back and tried to correct the Jewish, I mean the uh, the Julian calendar, Julius Caesar, Julian calendar, which Julius Caesar tried to enforce throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and it was accepted because it was forced in the Roman Empire, but not in the rest of the world. So, just a minute, uh, Doris. Uh, so, Pope Gregory went back and had somebody, a lot of people I would assume, uh, try to designate time periods primarily by important people or important events. Well, it worked out pretty well, but it's still the Gregorian calendar, as they call it, is the one that is universally used by all people all over the world today. Uh, there are some other separate calendars. The Jewish people have a separate calendar for, religi for religious purposes. But for all legal and social purposes, we all use the Gregorian calendar. All right. I'm sorry. Doris, you had a question? Well, now, if you go to Psalm 90, I don't remember what the exact verse, but Psalm 90, it talks about the average span of uh, age was 70 years or 80 if you were healthy. So if that was written way back 3,000 years ago, you know, they knew that, and they had, calendars for certain things, but they didn't have uh, calendars for historical things, particularly going backward. So, now, time and age and historical events, you have to kind of take them with a little bit of grain of salt, you might say. Um, there was a common belief up until just recently that the average age even in uh, America and other modern civilized countries was uh, 47. Well, that didn't mean that people didn't live beyond 47. That means when they say average age and mortality of children was very high, and you take all of that together, 47 might have been a reasonable average age. 
but it doesn't mean that there was something that cut you off at 47. Because if you look at a number of the saints in more modern times, many of them lived into long into their 70s and 80s and 90s. So um, age, time, and the recording of history has always been kind of a mystery to a lot of people. And it's always been sort of um, a fluid thing that, you know, if one person said it this way and another person said it that way, well, you know, you'd sort of have to go along with it. But Enoch was not a very influential people in Jewish history. So we can kind of pass him by. 40, chapter 45 gets into the praise of Moses Aaron and Phineas. Now, to make matters more complex, there were two Phineases. Okay. We, we won't go into both of them, but uh, one of Aaron's sons was Phineas. And the other one was oh, I'll panic. I can't, uh, can't remember. Anyways, I think a lot of this is interesting. It is not always accurate. But it is interesting as far as why did the Jewish people virtually worship some of these people? One of the things that it says here uh, in chapter 46 regarding Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were the, the followers of Moses and after Moses died, they took uh, control or, or power and led the Jewish people into the promised land and helped them to get settled. Verse 6, or, or, or verse 8, chapter 46, verse 8, it says, Because of this, they were the only two spared from the 600,000 uh Infantry. Now let's go back up a little to see what they were talking about. I'll have to almost read the whole thing from the beginning to make sense. Valiant leader Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses in the prophetic office, formed to be, as his name implies, the great savior of God's chosen ones, to punish the enemy and to win the inheritance of Israel, that is, returning to the land or the promised land of Israel after the uh, Egyptian exile. What glory was his when he raised his arm to brandish his javelin against the city? And that was the city of Jericho, remember. The walls came down after uh, that incident. And who could withstand him when he fought the battles of the Lord? to gain control of the land of Canaan. Did he not by his power stop the sun so that one day became two? He called upon the Most High God when his enemies beset him on all sides. And God Most High gave him, him answer in hail of tremendous, in hailstones of tremendous power. These are one of the things that 
uh, Joshua was known for. Okay, that all the doomed nations of Canaan might now know that the Lord was watching over his people's battle. And because he was a devout follower of God and in Moses' time showed himself loyal, he and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, uh, when they opposed the rebel assembly, averted God's anger from the people and suppressed the wicked. Because of this, they were the only two spared. Now, what he's talking about is after the molten calf situation where the people got concerned about Moses being lost because he was up at the mountain talking to God and he was up there for quite a while and they wanted somebody to really lead them and so they built this molten calf uh, and started worshiping so forth. That is the primary reason why they wandered through the desert for 40 years because God said that he would punish those people who were involved in this uh, building of this molten calf, this golden calf, okay? And, you know, they didn't, it wasn't that they didn't know where they were going. It wasn't that they couldn't have been there in a couple of weeks, but God made them wander through the Sinai Desert for 40 years to kill off all of those people who were involved in this situation. But in that 40 years, a number of new people were born to those same people. So it wasn't that there was only Joshua and Caleb that came into the promised land. A number of people came into the promised land along with them. But most of those people were young people at the time they left or people who were born in that 40-year time period. So this statement here, at verse nine, 8, rather, because of this, they were the only two spared from the 600,000 infantry, or the people who were walking along. 600,000. The desert could not support 600,000 people. In no way, no shape, no form, then or even now. But Jewish people loved to exaggerate when it came to numbers. We have a book that is called the Book of Numbers, in the part of the first five books of the Bible. So whenever they could, they would just add a few zeros to the uh, end, you know, to make it look good. No way could 600,000 people there, and that's true throughout all of the books of the Old Bible. you got to sort of uh, overlook or look with, you know, rolling eyes when they talk about numbers. Be careful. Okay. To lead the people <coughs> into their inheritance, the land, excuse me, the land flowing with milk and honey.
Then we go on here for Hezekiah and Isaiah, prophets. Josiah is a prophet. The heroes of the exile. Now, which exile are we talking about here? In this case, the Babylonian exile. You know, it's interesting. This is, I'm digressing a little bit. It's interesting. The Jewish people, even today, particularly in the Seder service, uh, which is a spring festival service and a joyous one, they celebrate their release or their escape uh, from Egypt. And it is the most important event in Jewish history. But in my way of looking at it, it really isn't the most effective event in Jewish history because the Babylonian exile was far more important, far more effective in a way because it began to bring the people into an understanding of who God was for them, that there was only one God. He was all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., etc., and that all other gods, so forth and so on, were non-existent. So they had to start rethinking their faith. And they did so in the terms of the book of Deuteronomy. But it helped them really start changing. And it was after that time that they began to see, because when they came back to Israel, after the Babylonian exile, they were no longer sovereign company or country. Uh, they were under the domination of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. So that is when they started to think about the new promised land, because this was not the promised land that God had intended to give them, and they needed a new promised land. And that's when the whole idea of God up there in heaven was heaven was the new promised land. And that started to take place around the 4th century B.C. And then it was not long after that when they decided they needed somebody to lead them into this new promised land. Somebody that was like David. Uh, and that is when the whole idea of the Messiah came forth. But getting back to the idea of the Jewish people making a big deal out of their uh, release from Egypt, but never talking about their release from Babylon. Anybody have an idea why? Amen. Yes. Yes. Remember, they went to Egypt as guests. God sent them to Egypt. It was a way of helping them grow and develop as a nation because they were being corralled there partly by geographic problems uh, or situations and then partly because they became uh, slaves uh, 
to the Egyptians. So their release by God was something to truly celebrate, and I have no problem with that. But as we just heard, the whole idea of Babylon was different. First of all, they didn't know why they were uh, conquered by the Babylonians and carted off to Babylon. God was supposed to protect them. That was part of the covenant. That was something that he wanted to do for them and so forth. But the thing is, they didn't give up their end of the bargain in the covenant. So they were sent there because of their evil ways. If you understand the whole situation of the Jewish monarchy after Sol David and Solomon, everything deteriorated uh, and did so to a very high degree. And so they were sent there because of their sinfulness and the waywardness of the Jewish rulers or leaders. And the Jewish monarchy then collapsed and disappeared. That is the same time when the prophets were brought in to sort of balance and try to correct the people. It didn't do any good. And so the period of the prophets collapsed and died out. So they don't celebrate the release from Babylon because, as we just heard, it was not something to be proud of, the reason they got there in the first place. And some of that is really depicted here. <coughs> Simon, uh, son of Jehoiakim, and there's a number of things here uh, that I think are really worthwhile from a historical point of view. If you go over to towards the end then of chapter 50. Yes. This is where this guy has finally run out of information and he's about ready to quit. Okay. He says, my whole being loathes two nations. The third is not even a people. Those who live in Syria and Philistia, the degenerate folk who dwell in Shechem, wise instruction, appropriate proverbs I have written in this book. I, Jesus, or Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach, as, in other words, this is the first and only place in all the books of the Old Testament where the writer actually identifies himself by name. No other book in the Old Testament does that. Partly because it was not the way of literature or writing at that particular time. The name of the individual was not too important as far as being in the content. Happy the man who meditates upon these things. And he sort of 
closing up now his whole idea. Wise the man who takes them to heart. If he puts them into practice, he can cope with anything. For the fear of the Lord is his lamp. All right, that's also a quotation out of uh, Psalm 119, verse 105. Okay. The uh, chapter 51 is pretty much a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And I think it is, it's beautiful in, in itself. I give you thanks, O God of my Father. I praise you, O God, my Savior. I will make known your name, refuge my life. You have been my helper against my adversaries. You have saved me from death and kept back my body from the pit. From the clutches of the netherworld, you have snatched my feet. You have delivered me in your great mercy. From the scourge of a scandalous tongue, and from his lips they went over to falsehood. From the snare of those who watched for my downfall, and from the power of those who sought my life. See, he's kind of reflecting on the people that refused to accept his teachings. From many a danger you have saved me, from flames that hem me on every side, from the midst of unremitting fire, from the deep belly of the netherworld, from deceiving lips and painters of lies, from the arrows of dishonest tongues. I was at the point of death, and my soul was near, nearing the depths of the netherworld. I turned every way, but there was no one to help me. I looked for one to sustain me, but could not find me. But then I remembered the mercies of the Lord, his kindness through ages past, for he saves those who take refuge in him and rescues them from every evil. And so I raised my voice from the very earth, from the gates of the netherworld, and I cried. I called out, Lord, are you my father? You are my champion and my savior. Do not abandon me in time of trouble, in the midst of storms and dangers. I will ever praise your name and be constant in my prayers to you. Thereupon, the Lord heard my voice. He listened to my appeal. He saved me from the evil of every kind and preserved me in time of trouble. For this reason, I thank him and I praise him. I bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Okay. Substitute the word being. And you get a greater idea of what is being said. Like I said earlier, these substitutions of words, all right, the word name, you'll come across that in a lot of Jewish histories and in Christians as well. Uh, but substitute the word being, your whole being, for the word name, and you'll get the better idea of what is being said. I bless the whole being of the Lord. 
When I was young and innocent, I sought wisdom. She came to me in her beauty, and until the end, I will cultivate her. As the blossoms yield to ripening grapes, the heart's joy. My feet kept to the level path because from earliest youth, I was familiar with her. And in the short time I paid heed, I met with great instruction. Since in this way I have profited, I will give my teacher grateful praise. <coughs> I became resolute, devoted to her. The good I persisted strove with. I burned with desire for her and never turned back. In other words, he's giving all this praise uh, to Lady Wisdom, right? The whole gift of wisdom. I won't read any further. You can read the rest of it. But I think that's a, a beautiful prayer in itself, one that we can often uh, apply to ourselves when we feel we're in a problem or a situation that is very difficult and uh it's hard to figure a way out. Now, the whole idea of wisdom, I think, starts to or should be coming to a head, and you people should you should all be thinking about it. And that's one of the things I want to do before we end this course is to go back to the opening. Of our uh, the opening uh, handout here. I hope you all have it. The first one, yes. If not, I'll read it. What I'd like you to do is to look at this definition of wisdom and see if you agree with it and does it fit what we have read and discussed so far. Wisdom is the ability to deal with life's experiences in a manner consistent with the will of God and the laws of nature, and when properly applied, leaves the acting person with a sense of peace and harmony. Now, I know if you opened up any other of the theological books and wanted to get a definition of wisdom, it would probably be several pages long. And then you'd forget what they were talking about before you got to the end. I've tried to condense this into something that is understandable, first of all, and usual. Wisdom is the ability to deal with life's experiences. Uh, from Job and Kohalath, we got a lot of life's experiences. How did it really affect us personally in dealing with life? Remember, one of them, uh, 
says there's just no point in trying to be good because everything is fixed. Uh, yes, Madge? Well, common sense would work into that in a way, yes. But you can't say that they are equal. No. Wisdom goes even further than that. Okay. Because common sense is influenced by outward, uh, you know, events and people. Wisdom is something that has to come from within. Something that you want to do because it has become part of you. Okay. The whole idea of taking what comes and being able to deal with it in a way that would honor God, uh, agree with the teachings of the church, and with a betterment of society. I think those three things are very important ingredients into the definition of wisdom. The will of God for us as individuals, the dealing with what God has given us in the way of nature and all created things, and how we deal with those particularly when we are dealing with other people. And that is something that we really have to give serious thought to. Because the will of God for us is so important. And so many people balk at that because they don't like to be told what to do. And unfortunately, it's when you give that up and accept God for who he is and what he is. As I've said before, uh, God's gift to you is who you are and what you are. Your gift to him is what you do with it. And, or I, I prefer to rephrase that. <clears throat> God's gift to you is who you are and what you are and what you do with it is your gift to him. And I think it's only when you come to terms with that and with this definition that you can really truly be at peace with yourself and everyone else. And then life's experiences will be much easier to deal with. But for those people who feel that everything has to be their way or to their thinking, they will never actually be at peace. And that's the whole objective of reading these books, wisdom books. I don't agree with everything that is said here, uh, not because it's wrong, but because it's no longer the Christian way of looking at them or thinking about them or acting upon them. 
So you have to know the difference. And you have to understand that these books were written over 2,000 years ago for a totally different, different purpose than what the Gospels and the books of the New Testament were written for. But I think as we go on, beginning next week, and getting into the actual book called the Book of Wisdom, we will begin to see a little bit more of how this works. The idea of Lady Wisdom is brought out much more clearly. And the Book of Wisdom, although it encompasses much of the same ideas, as Proverbs and Sirach. It's much easier to understand. It's also a lot shorter, so that there's you know not a lot of repetition in there. And I think, I certainly hope, that you'll get more out of it. Uh, because it really brings home who and what wisdom is. And that is the objective of all of our teachings, who and what wisdom is. Any questions? How did you like or dislike this book of Sirach? Honest answers. <laughs> Honest answers are accepted. Don't worry about them. Julie, you had a comment. Yes, Jennifer. Chapter Chapter 33, what? And yet with his great knowledge, the Lord makes men alike or unlike. In different paths he has them walk. Some he blesses and makes great. Some he sanctifies and draws to himself. Others he curses and brings low and expels them from their place. Um, all right, now... Sometimes when you get involved, there was another one that I marked and I wanted 
just hold on a minute because there was one I marked here that I wanted to show you. Lost track of which one it was. Well, let's go back. Going back to the book of Job and Kohala. There you had the idea that regardless of what anybody did, uh, they would all end up in the same place. Uh, and this is reads very much like that. <clears throat> but God does not predestine anybody. The church does not believe in predestination. Predestination is thought of and generally interpreted is that you are destined for either heaven or hell and regardless of what you do, it's not going to change. And that is definitely wrong. That is not Christian teaching. In, in some ways you see Yes, because if they believe that everybody ends up in the same place, uh, that in is a form of predestination. Regardless of what you do, as it says in, in both uh, Job and Kohelet, regardless of what you do, you're all going to end up in the same place. Well, that sounds like predestination because there is only one place in that thinking. Now, we know differently. And, of course, the church does not believe in predestination. Well, a lot of people will say then, because the Virgin Mary was made perfect in the eyes of God to begin with, wasn't she predestined? Well, yes, but that was she was predestined for uh, a, a glorious afterlife. But she could have said no. So that's what makes the difference. She could have said no because of free will. Yeah. So it's where we have uh, a choice to make. And just reading these few verses that you mentioned here in 33, it appears that there was no choice. Okay. So that is what the difference is, free will and choice. But again, the Catholic Church does not believe in predestination. We all have an opportunity to get to heaven. The other thing is, God does not, under any circumstance, condemn anybody. It is we who condemn ourselves by not following the teachings of Christ the teachings of God and the church. Well, 
Well, there was no heaven in their thinking. Right, in their thinking for us. That's what I meant. Yeah. I think uh, that's why God the Father sent Jesus to set us free and, and give us guidelines. That's right, yeah. To change the thinking of the time. Yeah, that's one of his many duties. Yes. In the vernacular, I believe there was destiny, predestination. Oh. Because. Go to confession. Because. <laughs> because Evie and I were meant to be together. Uh. I believe that. I do too. Yeah. Uh, well, not to divulge a lot of things, but Evie and Dick are going through some very difficult problems, medical problems, and dealing with them. So your prayers would be appreciated. Uh, that kind of predestination, I'll, I'll, I'll go for. Exception, exception to the rule. Exception to the rule, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm a little confused. Um, between the, the beliefs of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I remember when Paul went to trial, one of the ways he got himself out of it, it was getting him mad because Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees do. But it sounds like Sirach, um, if he was a Sadducee, was he around when they had this idea about resurrection? Or oh, yeah. was that much later? Or Yes, yes. And that was one of the main reasons why his book was not accepted by the Jewish people when it was written. It's because he was a Sadducee he did not believe in life after death. And the Pharisees were in control. And they did. Because they were, you know, moving towards this Hellenistic idea of there was life after death. And therefore, they were primarily the ones that caused the book not to be accepted when it was first written. It wasn't until 60-some years later <clears throat> that the grandson got a hold of it in Africa, in Alexandria, where there was a large Jewish community who did believe in life after death. But he felt that this book was worthwhile, and uh, he was the one that translated it from Hebrew into Greek, and it was accepted in Alexandria, and then it was included, because of that acceptance, it was included in the Septuagint version. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes. But uh, that was an interesting, I uh, forget which book of the uh, New Testament is written, but Paul was confronted by a number of, of people and he knew that the situation was uh, rather difficult, uh, but there was Sadducees and there were Pharisees. So he talked about, his mission was to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how all of us would participate in that at some point in time. And that started an argument, not with Paul, but between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it got so heated that Paul was able to walk away and get out of it. Yes. Yes. The same way with the Babylonians. Yeah. 
and not all of them returned. You know, they thought, because many of them were born there, well, in fact, really all of them were born there, so they didn't really know that much about Israel and, and the so-called promised land, so if they had a decent life in Egypt, why should they leave? Because not all of them were slaves in the way we think of slaves. All right? Uh, and some of them had pretty decent lives. If you saw the movie um, it's about Moses, I forgot. The Ten Commandments, yes. If you saw the movie The Ten Commandments, that's brought out quite well by the character played by Edwin G. Robinson. He he was uh he was uh well off and he felt why should he go back to Egypt? Uh he didn't know any, I mean to Israel, he didn't know anything about Israel and he paid the price. Yeah. No, I don't. Well, I don't think so. Now, you you might be thinking, <clears throat> you might be thinking of the Samaritans, and the whole reason why the people at the time of Jesus were so against the Samaritans, and that is because in the eighth century B.C., Samaria and that whole region was conquered by the Assyrians of that time period. And the people were taken to Assyria in the same way as the people were taken to Babylonia uh, 200 years later, or almost. And what happened was then the Assyrians brought in all the people that they didn't want in their country and parked them in Samaria. So they became the descendants, or the ancestors, I should say, the ancestors of this Samaritans of Jesus' time. And they were considered as half-breeds, you might say, um, even though they tried to assimilate, but didn't entirely. So they were not entirely Jews. And that is why they were so disliked. So many people don't know that, but that is a long way around of explaining that. Any other questions? All right. Next week, we will begin the book of wisdom. And we're going to go through it almost word for word because it is worthwhile. It has something to say to everyone. And I think it's beautifully done. Uh, so we'll do it in two parts. If you uh, will do the first there's only 19 chapters in the book, so we'll do about the first 10 uh, next week and then the remainder the following week. Now, I want to ask a question. We have talked about seeing the movie The Shack at, at the last meeting. Anyone not want to see it? The thing is, the movie runs a little over two hours which means if we started at 9.30 on the dot, it would be 11.30, and if, if if there was any discussion afterwards, which I would hope there would be, uh, it could run 
you know, to 12 o'clock. Anybody have a problem with that? If you do, I mean, you're welcome to leave. Uh, but I would like to make sure that the majority of you want to see this movie. Can I bring my coffee? You can bring your whole lunch if you wish. <laughs> this will be the last meeting. What yes. Is the date of our last meeting? Uh, November the 8th. Eighth, I believe it's the eighth. Yeah. No. Well, I miscounted. My second mistake. Yeah. I know, but I think it's the eighth. If, hmm? Is it tenth on the fifteenth? Is wisdom the last book? Yes. All right, then it is the 15th. If we're going to watch a movie. 15th, yeah, okay. It is the 15th, all right. But the, the main thing that I want you to do is to be aware that it will be a longer meeting if you stay for the whole movie and want to watch or talk about uh, some of the points in there. I don't think so, no. Okay. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing in our efforts as we always should. We ask that you help us to develop a true understanding of wisdom as it is mentioned or intended to be here from these books. Help us to learn how to accept your most holy will and put it into practice as we <coughs> interact with other people. Give us the strength and the courage then to forego our personal desires in favor of accepting yours. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts now and always. We give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. Jesus' name.